Well, we're going to continue in our, our Christmas series, the Infancy Hymns. Um, I think it's been a couple of weeks since, since we were there. We had uh, our missionary, Mike Cohen, with us last week, and that was a, that was a real treat. That was nice to have him come in and, and uh, preach God's word. It was great. But we're going to continue. So in Luke's chapter 1 and 2, uh, there are three songs uh, that were composed right before and after the birth of Jesus. Uh, we call them the infancy hymns. Um, each hymn or song celebrates the incarnation, the coming of God in flesh, uh, and emphasizes a particular part or aspect of the work of Messiah, of Jesus Christ. Two weeks ago, we looked at the Song of Mary, the Magnificat. Uh, that's the Latin phrase for it, and it emphasizes God's mercy. Uh, this morning, we're going to look at the second infancy hymn that we see in the text, and that's the Song of Zechariah, uh, which is called in Latin the Benedictus, and it emphasizes God's salvation. So one emphasizes God's mercy, the next emphasizes God's salvation. That's kind of the, the big thrust of his uh, Benedictus. Uh, but bemo- before moving forward, I think it'd be good to just build a little more context and background. Uh, I don't like to jump into any narrative uh, of Scripture without context. I mean, it's a story, it's playing out, and we need to know why. But anyways, back in Luke chapter 1, 39 through 56... Uh, Mary went to the hill country of Judea to visit her relative Elizabeth to tell her about her pregnancy with Jesus, uh, the Immaculate Conception, if you will. Uh, And at that time, Elizabeth was six months pregnant with her baby, uh, little John, not really, uh, John the Baptist, little baby John the Baptist. That was a dumb reference. Uh, Elizabeth was absolutely overjoyed when she heard the news of Mary's pregnancy with Messiah. I mean, she was kind of like blown away by it. And she began to praise God and, and she said, she actually called Mary the mother of her Lord. So she was able to recognize the significance of the baby in, in Mary's womb and acknowledging um, him as Lord already which is pretty exciting. Mary then breaks out in song and she begins to sing about the wonderful things that God had done for her, kind of this personal thing that that happened between her and God and how he was caring for her. And then she really puts the emphasis on God's mercy. Uh, And then in verse 56, it says, Mary stayed with Elizabeth for three months. And that was uh, roughly the the duration or the remaining time of her pregnancy. I don't think she stayed through the birth, but she stayed right up to that point and then returned to her home in uh, Nazareth. And then verses 57 through 66 describe the birth of John the Baptist. Eight days after he was born, his parents, Elizabeth and Zechariah, did what was totally customary and took him to the local synagogue to be circumcised. Uh, and that is also an interesting little fact. That is also the moment where they kind of publicly, if you will, named the child. So they wouldn't issue the name to the child until the eighth day. So they didn't have you know, a bunch of names picked out and all that. They kind of just did it then. It's interesting. Now, Jews call that particular moment, the circumcision, a bris, B-R-I-S. Have you heard of that word before? Yeah, I used to think it was brisk with a K, I have no idea why. So when I looked it up, there's no K, and I thought that makes way more sense because I always change words and meaning. It's just weird. I have this weird ability to do that. It's actually a gift Um, that always ends in disaster. Uh, So, you know, he's at the bris. Now, prior to the bris, uh, Zechariah had lost his voice. He had literally lost his voice. God kind of made him mute, if you will. He didn't kind of do it. He did it. He made him mute because he doubted the angel Gabriel's prophecy about his wife's pregnancy. You know, Gabriel came and visited and, and he just totally was like, man, we're like way old and she's been barren our you know, entire marriage. She's never had kids. It's not going to happen. He kind of had that attitude and he was made mute because of it. 
He doubted the word of the Lord, which reminds me that, that when we doubt the word of the Lord or challenge the word of the Lord, um, it comes with consequences. It certainly can. So in his case, it was mute. He couldn't speak. He literally had to like write things out. That's how he communicated with his wife. I'm going to mow the lawn. You know, I don't know if he did that. but So that went on for, you know, like nine months. And, but during the bris, God restored his voice. And, and really the, the first thing that he does is he says the baby's going to be named John. And the second thing he does is he begins to just praise God. He just starts worshiping God. And then in verse 67, it says that he was filled with the Holy Spirit. Carol just read that for us. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. And that is totally significant because really nothing good is going to come unless we're filled with the Holy Spirit. And so he's filled with the Holy Spirit. And then he begins to prophesy. Okay. It says in the text, prophesy or sing his, his benediction his proclamation of what's happening or what's going to happen. It's a kind of a prophetic proclamation, if you will. And that's where we're going to pick up in the text. So now we're up to speed. Let me just pray. Father, open our ears, minds, and hearts to your truth. Uh, Plant it deep within us. And not that it would just remain in us as a seed that just sits there, but that it would germinate and burst forth in transformation and sanctification and change in our lives, and then much, much fruit, fruit in our lives and fruit that would come through us. And so just make us a little bit more like Jesus this morning as we study your word. We love you so much and are so thankful for all that you've done and do. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to pick it up at 68 through 70, verses 68 through 70. Hopefully you're already there. And it says, uh, blessed be the Lord God of Israel. This is, again, this is the beginning of his benediction. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets of old. Zechariah, this is really, really interesting and awesome. Zechariah saw Mary's pregnancy because that's what he's, you know, he's got baby John in front of him, if you will, but he's thinking about Mary's pregnancy and what's actually happening. Little baby John here that's at his brisk reminds him of what's going on with Mary, who is still pregnant at the time. And, And he literally sees Mary's pregnancy as a visitation from God as a visitation from God, that God had come down in flesh to redeem his people. That's the incarnation. That's what incarnation means. Now, Zechariah was thinking of many things. As as we study his benediction, his prophetic benediction, we will see that he had many things going on in his mind, in his spirit, as he's proclaiming these things. But one of the things that we notice right off the bat, look at that little phrase there. It says, in the house of his servant David. So what he's thinking about here is, number one, Mary's pregnant. That's the visitation of God. That is God in flesh in her womb. And secondly, he's thinking about the Davidic covenant. The Davidic covenant, which is God's promise, basically. Now, it's multifaceted, but one big thrust of it is that God promised to raise up from the line of David a horn of salvation. A horn of salvation. Now, when you read the Old Testament, the horn of salvation or a horn symbolizes power and strength. And when I think of a horn, I think of the horns that they blew right before a battle. You know, and then they would march in and devastate their enemy. So horn is a symbol of strength and power, and then horn of salvation is actually a messianic reference, it ref- meaning that horn of salvation refers to, at least in this text, Messiah. It's a reference to Messiah. When Messiah enters the scene or enters into time and space or whatever you want to call it, when he enters into humanity, into our world, he will begin to establish you know, his millennial kingdom or, and then his everlasting kingdom, if you will, he will begin to establish his, 
throne, his rule over the house of David. It's amazing to think that when Jesus came, he didn't come just to die for our sins and do all that. He came to initiate his kingdom and to begin really in some ways, maybe we would call it the construct, his construction project of his kingdom. And so his kingdom is not yet here, but it is because his kingdom people are here. And so we're in this kind of flux of he's building his kingdom right now as he adds more and more people to his church, but he's going to actually come and consummate and establish it and it'll reign and rule for a thousand years and beyond and all that stuff. But the idea here is that Zechariah sees this arrival or visitation from God as the beginning of the fulfillment of this kind of covenant promise. This is the horn of salvation that's in Mary's womb is what he's basically saying. He understands these things. It's really interesting. Now, what's interesting too about the Davidic covenant is that it has global implications. Okay, God's covenants deal with Israel in many different ways. He's got national covenant. He's got global kind of stuff. He's got redemption covenant. He's got these different kinds of things going on with his people. And the Davidic covenant has kind of global implications. In other words, it doesn't just apply to the nation of Israel. It's very national, but it doesn't just apply to the nation of Israel. What's going to actually happen is Messiah, the Messiah King, shall rule over the entire earth not just over the house of David or over the tribe of Judah or those other Old Testament references. He will reign and rule over the entire earth. So that's an aspect of the Davidic covenant. You know, when Jesus comes and he came the first time and when he comes the second time, he's going to establish a kingdom that is far reaching throughout the entire earth. He'll subdue the nations and everything else. He kind of references the holy prophets of old. You know, it, it's the, the Old Testament prophets is what he has in mind there. And, and those are the guys, those are the folks that basically testified to these things, that talked about um, Messiah coming and establishing his kingdom and rule and reign and those things. In fact, all of the Old Testament prophets point to Jesus in one way or another. The whole point of their ministry was to announce the coming of Messiah, even though they might have been talking about some things that had to do with Israel or the way that people were living or what have you. Zechariah is literally, at this moment in time in history, he is watching this covenant come to pass, if you will. The arrival of Jesus means, man, it's happening, and he's watching with his own eyes. His own son represents these things in a sense, and then Mary's son does. And so he's watching these things as a, as a first-person witness. And I know it's just blown his mind, and that's why he's singing. He knew, he knew, he knew what so many people today in our culture, communities, world do not know. And he knew that baby Jesus, who wasn't even born yet, is the horn of salvation, is the Messiah. He knew that. He understood that. In verses 71 through 75, Zechariah sang about some of the additional benefits of this salvation or what the horn of salvation Jesus Christ would establish for his people. Now, when we think of salvation, we tend to think of being delivered from or saved from sin, right? Isn't that kind of like the first thing that comes to your mind when you think of salvation? You think of the spiritual implications of it. You think of my sins have been washed away. We sing about that all the time, right? Sin had left a crimson stain. You know, we do that. That's what we think of. And this is totally and absolutely true, and I would never minimize that. But being saved from sin by the horn of salvation's work, Jesus is only the starting point for the believer, for that person who has received that grace. The salvation, the Messiah, the horn of salvation, Jesus Christ acquired for us goes way beyond just being saved from your sins, which is a pretty darn cool thing, which is an amazing thing which is what gives me joy to know that even though I, I, you know, I've been saved and all that and I, I still stumble and fail, and believe me, I did when we were putting this building together because I hit my 
thumb with hammers and did all kinds of things and saw things happen that went, oh, mommy, you know, and, and I found myself just getting mad and frustrated at myself, maybe at some others, whatever, and I'm just thinking, man, I'm just a sinner and I hate this. But to know that, that even those sins are taken care of, are covered by His grace, by His mercy, is just amazing. And so we rejoice over that aspect, but let me tell you, you're going to be rejoicing over some of the other aspects as, as he unpacks them, Zechariah, inspired by the Holy Spirit, unpacks them. There are other things that he listed here that go beyond being saved from sin. And these are covenant blessings. You want to think of them as covenant blessings. God is a God of covenant. He chooses, he's chosen a people for himself, and he has made covenants with those people throughout history. He is a God of covenant, and these are covenant blessings. Now, let's look at the ones that Zechariah is saying about in 71 through 75. Number one, deliverance from all haters and foes. Deliverance from all haters and foes. That's a big one for me. I don't know if I have a lot of haters and foes, but I just like the idea of not having to contend with people over the gospel or anything else anymore in the future. Verse 71 is where he talks about it. He says that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Boom. This covenant blessing is, is amazing, and, and it, it's not something that we're experiencing yet. Well, we've been delivered, in a sense, from all the spiritual enemies and all that, but they still mess with us all the time. We still have to pray against them and deal with them, and they still cause us to fumble. So there's, there's a deliverance there, but they're still wrestling with those things. This is not a covenant blessing that we have fully experienced yet by any means. We will experience the fullness of it when we go to be with the Lord, in a sense, because then there's total deliverance. We don't have to contend with any more enemies of any kind. But I think what he's thinking about here is he's thinking about when Messiah comes to establish his kingdom and he subdues all the nations and he deals with all like earthly enemies. And you just think about that from a Jewish perspective. You think about that from Israel's perspective. They are completely surrounded by enemies and always have been and will be until the Lord, until the second advent. You know, I mean, for crying out loud, they're now having to fight ISIS. They've never had to fight ISIS before. And now ISIS is carrying out small attacks against them, which I think will end up in the total destruction of ISIS. We're certainly not doing any much about it over there, but Israel, man, when Israel defends itself, you don't want to be in the crosshairs. Good night. You get your butt blown off over there real quick messing with them. But there's coming a moment in time where Messiah rectifies all that and subdues and destroys all the enemies, and Israel will be free to worship and serve God the way that, the way that they desire to. De- deliverance from all haters and foes, and I'm not even thinking about the spiritual implication of that right there. Is there one? Yeah, in a sense, think of it like this. Israel contends with physical enemies, and they will until Messiah comes the second advent, right? They have to deal with that. We've been delivered in a way. We've been delivered from sin fully and all that, but we still have to contend with the flesh. We still have to contend with that enemy, don't we? And the spiritual forces and all that. So you can see the implication for us is that we may not have a lot of street enemies here and all that stuff going on, a lot of persecution, whatever. It is happening in other parts of the world. But for us here, we're like, well, I don't really care about deliverance from haters and foes because I don't really have any. Well, you should if you're following Jesus. But think about the enemy of your flesh. There's going to come a day when Jesus returns or you go up to be with him or he comes and gets you and takes you with him. On that particular day, you will not have to contend with the enemy of the flesh anymore. You will not have to fight that anymore. You won't have to pray about that anymore. Man, just give me the strength today just to fight myself. Which, I don't know about you, I don't even have to have any enemies. All I got to have is me. Right? You know, back when they... They put together the, I'm thinking of the the monks and the monasteries and all that. The idea uh, there was to get away from the world, get get separate us. You know, the Essenes, those people, those ancient people. It's, 
you know, the monasteries and all that. The whole idea is we're going to just, we're going to take a group of people and we're just not going to deal with the world anymore. We're going to get away from it. We're going to go hide over here in this monastery and everything's going to be perfect. We're going to have a great time. Everything's going to be perfect. We're not going to worry about all these struggles anymore and all that. And yet they have confession three times a day at every monastery in the world. Why do they still have confession there? There's not supposed to be sin issues there and all that. Are you kidding me? Because there's still people there. I'm thinking of Martin Luther, who went to confession like five times a day. His priest is like, Luther, why do you keep coming? You were here ten minutes ago. Well, I sinned again. No matter what you do, no matter what's going on around you, you still got you. You We have this flighty society and culture today where, you know, oh, these people, we've got problems with them, I'll just leave them and move on, and I'll go over here and deal with them. Oh, now I got it with them, and I'll keep moving. The common denominator is you. You're a sinner, and maybe you're saved by grace. You've still got to wrestle with that sin. Guess what Jeremiah's, or not Jeremiah, but Zechariah's talking about here. There's coming a day where Jesus is going to deal with that and take care of that, so you don't even have to deal with the enemy of flesh. All haters and foes, even, even flesh. It's going to be fantastic. Second, promised mercy, 72a, to show the mercy promised to our fathers. Micah 7 speaks of God's covenant promises to the patriarchs Jacob and Abraham. God had promised to show their progeny, ancestors, compassion and forgiveness. And, or what I think Zechariah refers to here, obviously, as mercy in 72a. To show compassion and forgiveness is to show mercy. Now this visitation here that he's speaking of, the visitation of God and the raising up of the horn of salvation, the Lord Jesus Christ, is this expression of God's mercy and the fulfillment of this particular covenant promise to those patriarchs. This visitation, Jesus and Mary's womb, is this expression that he's speaking of here of God's mercy to God's people. I've sent you a Messiah. I've sent you a Savior to carry out this compassion, to carry out this forgiveness for you, to bring that and to deliver that to you. Zechariah is sitting there going, this is happening. How amazing. Now, now here's the implication for us. The mercy that God promised to the patriarchs, Jacob and Abraham, the mercy that Zechariah realized was happening right before his very eyes, that's our mercy. It's not just their mercy. It doesn't just belong to to that set of people in particular. The Messiah came to establish that mercy in global proportion, to to deliver it in a sense. It's our mercy. And and let me tell you, how do you know you have the mercy of God? Do you have faith in Jesus Christ? Do you not know that that faith is an expression of God's mercy? Where did the faith come from? Well, uh, I think it was a divine seed that was planted. That's just a bunch of malarkey. Nobody has faith in them. It comes as a divine gift, as an act of mercy. If you believe in Jesus, you are a partaker of this mercy, the mercy that Zechariah is exploding and singing about. Mercy, mercy, mercy. This gal at Big Valley I used to work with, she was one of the... um, admins over there. She was hilarious. Whenever something would happen bad, she'd say, mercy, come a-running. It was just hysterical. Tammy, you got the mercy. It ain't going to come a-running. It's all over you. Oh, okay. Now, if you believe in Jesus alone for your salvation, if you believe in him, the promised covenant mercy of God is upon you and it will never end. It's on you and it ain't going anywhere. It's boundless, it's endless, and as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, it's fresh and new every morning. So you've got deliverance from all haters and foes, and that even includes our own flesh. You've got promised mercy. And then number three, this one is a little more complex, and this one I I was really challenged to write about because it was kind of like I felt like it was beyond my threshold of understanding or, or even comprehension in a sense, and certainly my ability to communicate. So I, I was just like writing like a fool this week, and I was totally stressing because we had all this work to do here. And everything was just flowing. I was just like, oh, yeah. 
Then I got to this part and I was like, and it took me like a whole day to figure out how to explain this to you. And I, I hope I don't blow it. But number three, and it's, it's now it's my favorite portion here. Number three, unmitigated peace, holiness, righteousness, and the everlasting presence of God. Verses 72b through 75. And to remember, this is Zechariah again singing about the baby in Mary's womb, Messiah, the horn of salvation. And to remember his holy covenant. God has remembered it. He's acknowledging that. God remembered his holy covenant, yes. And he says, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. This is a multifaceted doctrinal, I don't even know, it's just a mountain of doctrine. It's just an an insane little tiny section of scripture, just mind-blowing. I mean, if you just read it to yourself right there, just try to, okay, how would I describe this to someone? Do you even understand what it means when you first read it? It was hard for me. Now, what Zechariah had in mind here, he had the Abrahamic um, covenant in mind here. So he had the Davidic a moment ago. Now he's thinking of the covenant that God made with Abraham. And, And interestingly, that covenant came before the covenant with David. David lived long after Abraham. Now we find, uh, the Abrahamic covenant in, you know, it's, it's, kind of littered throughout Scripture, the Old Testament and all that, but we see a really, really amazing example of it in Genesis 22, 17, and 18. And I'll just paraphrase it. God promised to bless Abraham in a number of ways. Firstly, by multiplying his offspring. Now, what that means in in Jewish categories is a legacy or heritage. God's covenant blessing or promise to Abraham is I'm going to multiply your seed, your people. You're going to I'm going to make a people from you and it's going to continue on and on and on and on. Huge blessing from God to know that your lineage and your line will continue on and on and on, especially in Jewish categories. I don't know about American categories. Do we really even think about those things. Maybe there's some guys out there that really want to have a son because he's the one that carries on the bloodline and they flip out when they don't have one or whatever. There's not a lot of people that think like in those categories here. But in Jewish categories, it's massive. And so God promised to bless Abraham by multiplying his offspring. Another huge one, by destroying the enemies of his offspring. As your people multiply throughout the ages, throughout the centuries, I'm going to take down their enemies. I'm going to take them out. Another way that he was going to bless his offspring is by giving his offspring the land of their enemies. Now, what starts to come to mind here? The exodus, them entering into the promised land, right? One enemy after another, getting crushed by God, them taking the land of the Canaanites and this ite and that ite, a lot of ites, right? Think about that. And then lastly, blessing all the nations of the earth through the seed or the offspring of Abraham. And that has messianic implications right there. Now, throughout history, God had given the Israelites little tastes of these covenant blessings, right? Then I mentioned some of them. You've got victory over their enemies. You've got the promised land. You've got the temple, which is the manifestation of God's presence. You've got the times of peace that they experienced and enjoyed. Think of Solomon's reign. I think he reigned for somewhere around 40 years and they had like no warfare for all that time. Now, right before that, when his daddy reigned, they were at war the entire time. In fact, that's why David couldn't build the temple. He had too much blood on his hands. But his son Solomon, when he came into position, man, they had a time of peace and prosperity that was unreal. So they had little tastes of these covenant blessings as they were moving into the promised land and getting situated there and all that. But the fullness of these covenant blessings had yet to be experienced. God's people would have to wait until Messiah comes to set things up in such a way where the fullness of these covenant blessings to Abraham could be experienced. 
Only then would they begin to experience the fullness of the covenant blessings that Zechariah listed here, which are what? Unmitigated peace with God, holiness, righteousness, and the everlasting presence of God. Now, Zechariah understood, and that's just the way that he unpacks the Abrahamic covenant. Those are his words to describe it, but it has all those implications. Zechariah understood that the baby in Mary's womb, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, had come to begin to bring the Abrahamic covenant to its fullness and to usher in these covenant blessings for God's people, in particular, the Jewish people. Now, the new covenant, which Jesus Christ established, During the Last Supper, you remember, take this bread, take this wine, this is my blood of the covenant. Remember how he established the new covenant at the Last Supper during communion? That's one of the reasons why we celebrate it so often. Jesus Christ established the new covenant during the Last Supper, and then on the very next day, you know, in the afternoon, he ratified it, he sealed it, he ratified it with his own blood. Now, under the new covenant, It allows all people, it doesn't have just Jewish implications, it allows all people, Gentile, Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, and free man. These are New Testament titles for people. It basically means all types, all tribes and tongues, all sorts of people. Under the new covenant, which Jesus established, it allows all people, every tribe and tongue, every type, to partake of these covenant blessings that we're looking at here in this text, the Abrahamic covenant blessings. It allows any. Now, in Zechariah's mind, I think he understood that these covenants were far-reaching and beyond his own people, but he was certainly thrilled that they applied to his own people. And here's the deal. Because of the gospel, because of the gospel, the good news of what Christ has done, because of the work of Jesus, the finished work, the person and finished work of Jesus, you and I are now experiencing unmitigated peace with God the Father. What does unmitigated mean? Well, synonyms for it would be unabated, unbroken. Okay, so unbroken peace with God the Father. Think about that. We are experiencing, because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, unbroken, and I would say, and unbreakable. It can't can't be destroyed unbreakable peace with God the Father through the person and finished work of Jesus Christ. We have also, under the new covenant, and by our faith, by that grace, we have also been made holy through the person and finished work of Jesus Christ. That's another one of the covenant blessings. His blood has washed away our sin and made us holy, right? And we have been made righteous. Another one of the covenant blessings that's applied to us because of our faith. We have been made righteous through the person and finished work of Jesus Christ. He took our sins and gave us his righteousness. We are clothed in his righteousness. We call it the great exchange. You see, as believers, we are partakers of the covenant blessings Zechariah sang about, and we will experience their total and absolute fullness when the Lord Jesus returns to consummate his kingdom. Now, interestingly, when Jesus comes back to consummate his kingdom, that'll be the first time that many Jews experience any of this stuff. But it's coming for them. Even though they reject Jesus during Zechariah's day, during Jesus' day, they reject him now. There's coming a day where these covenant promises will be applied to them. Not all, but true Israel, the spiritual seed of Abraham. Now, for me personally, I believe the greatest of all the covenant blessings that we're looking at here is the everlasting presence of God. To me, that's the, that's the I mean, yeah, the holiness. In fact, you can't even have the everlasting presence of God in the way that Zechariah intends here without the holiness, without the righteousness, without any of that. You have to have those things or else you can never be in the presence of God. But for me personally, I think that's my favorite one. And Zechariah made sure to include a little detail about it at the end of 75, didn't he? What does he say? Before him all our days. Now just think about this. From the moment of regeneration, which is the new birth, when a person is born again, 
The presence of God is with the believer forever. From that moment on, forever and ever and ever. Into eternity and beyond. From the moment that the Holy Spirit comes in power and makes his abode in that lost sinner, from that moment throughout all time and beyond time, that person experiences the presence of God. There's never a pause in it. There's never a break in it. There's never a hesitation. As Mike always says, take your Bibles and turn to the book of hesitations. There's no book of hesitations in the Bible, and there's no hesitation in the presence of God. It's endless, and it's boundless. Now, okay, so from the moment that the person is regenerated, the Holy Spirit goes into them. The the Holy Spirit, the presence of God is in them forever. During his life, during his death, during his time in heaven, during his time on earth in the millennial kingdom, the thousand-year reign of Jesus Christ, and for all eternity in the eternal kingdom, the new heavens and new earth. He or she is in the presence of God. He or she has the presence of God. Now, this is incredible, and I think that's why Zechariah points to it here, because his mind was just blown now. He's thinking of the baby and, you know, baby Jesus in Mary's womb. Wow, this is what he's come to bring. It's totally and absolutely amazing because under the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, God manifested his presence on earth in a few individuals here and there, a king or some prophet or something like that. You didn't have the Holy Spirit working under the Old Covenant the same way that he does in the New Covenant. So individuals would, on occasion, God would put his spirit on them. It wasn't on all the believers all the time. It would be on this one or this one for this particular task. So, under the Old Covenant, God manifested His presence on earth in a few individuals here and there, and at the tabernacle, and in in places like the tabernacle, and in the temple. But under the New Covenant, which basically the Abrahamic Covenant blends, all the covenants work like this, they dovetail right into each other. The Abrahamic kind of morphs into the New Covenant, and the New Covenant carries out all the blessings of the Abrahamic and the additional blessings that God has packed into it. Under the New Covenant, and here's what's amazing, under the New Covenant, Zechariah understood this, God manifests his presence on earth in his people through the Holy Spirit, not in temples made by human hands. In his people, in the saint, in the the sinner saved by grace. What does it say in 1 Corinthians 3.16? We are the temple of God. You can build buildings and and the Jews can go ahead and build another temple over there. They're probably going to do that and all that. God's presence is not going to be in it. God's presence is in his people. Now, one could very easily argue that since God is omnipresent, he is everywhere and already we are already in his presence. And somebody could argue that fact and, and that, and it would be fact. It's totally true. But did you realize that before you were saved? Did you glory in that before you were saved? Did you acknowledge that before you were saved? Did you praise God about that fact before? You didn't even know it. You didn't even know it. You did not know you were in the presence of God. You didn't even know there was a God. In fact, you spent your entire life running from him if he existed. And so, sure, somebody could argue, well, God is everywhere all the time. He's omnipresent. Well, of course you could. But what we're talking about in this text is unique and different. This is the very presence of God in a person, which is far different than him just being everywhere, to make his abode in a person where his glory and his power exists. That is something that no Old Testament, a few of them, I might say, experienced that when they were anointed with the Spirit for a task. Why did David say, take not your spirit from me in Psalm 51, I think is where he said it. So a few experienced that, and they were blown away by it, and they never wanted to wanted it to end, but it did end. But under the new covenant, the Abrahamic covenant comes in and it blends into the new. What Jesus established for us is that the eternal everlasting presence of God 
You never have to go farther than yourself if you're in Christ to experience the presence of God. Zachariah is seeing that here with baby Jesus, and he's like, what? To me, that's just amazing. The bottom line is this, and I know some of you at times are lonely. Some of you at times, you know, friends and family or whatever, they're not around, whatever it is. Maybe you're single or whatever, and you feel the sting of that. I understand that, but you are never alone. You are never alone. And, and then that, that's sobering for someone like me who, who likes to sin on occasion. God, is, his eyes are, it's not just that he's looking down from heaven on me. He's right here and I'm grieving him. Right? So it's, 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 it's an encouragement to us when we are abandoned or feel lonely. And it's sobering and convicting when we are tempted and want to get into sin or when we do engage in sin. It's like, I am not just sinning against my own body, but against the Holy Spirit. We are never not in God's presence. And we have Jesus to thank for that. That is what he, the horn of salvation secured for us. The washing away of, of, of our sin, absolutely, but also this everlasting presence of God, which one day will not be received and understood through the eyes of faith, but through our physical eyes when we stand in the presence of God. Now, that's going to be mind-blowing. That's going to be mind-blowing. I can't wait for that. Because right now, it's a faith connection. And I praise God I have it because I know He's here and I think it's awesome and it's cool, but it's kind of strange too at times when I don't sense His presence. There's all of the difficulty that comes with only seeing by faith. There is no difficulty when we will see with our own eyes. And that is coming for us. That is coming for us. And remember this. Remember Psalm 1611, which is like one of my favorite verses in the whole world. In his presence, there is what? Fullness of... Somebody's got to know it. Bruce is scanning. Somebody said it, and he's like, joy. (laughs) The fullness of joy. And then what else does that psalm say? It says there's something in his right hand. Pleasures forevermore. In his presence, even right here. It's astounding, you guys. It is astounding. It is astounding. Those are some of the covenant blessings that we get to experience, that unmitigated peace, the holiness, the righteousness. We have those things now. We have the everlasting presence of God, which will one day not be by faith alone, but by sight. And that's going to be amazing. We have the mercy of God. Those things, these things are ours. They are ours How wonderful. Now let's look at 76a. Here's where he begins to prophesy and sing over his little boy, little John. That's like a Robin Hood reference, is it not? Am I right, Robin? Robin knows all of that stuff. 76a, and you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. This is him, this is daddy singing this over his son. How cool is that? Cameron, do you ever sing over little Cohen? I'd probably suggest not doing it. I've heard your voice. Um, But you could easily have your wife do it. Right? No idea where this stuff comes from. I looked at you and I thought of you. Um, Sing over your son. It's okay. Your your son's not like Star Search. He's not going to hit a gong. You sing God's promises over your kids. Speak, your, speak God's promises over your kids, right? Speak God's promises over your, Our kids are covenant kids. They're covenant children. Speak God's promises over your kids. Sing them if you've got a voice. Or do it when nobody else is there except your kid. Zechariah now begins to prophesy and sing over his little boy. Notice how he calls him. There's a detail here. Does anyone pick up on it immediately? He calls him what? The... Not a, he calls him the prophet of the most high instead of you are a prophet. He says you are the prophet. He's singing the prophet over him. You are the prophet of the most high. There's that wonderful Old Testament reference that Nebuchadnezzar, the crazy pagan king who got saved, who said over and over and over, right? The most high God, he said that over and over. He calls his little baby John, he calls him the prophet of the Most High. 
Zechariah recognized that little baby John was the prophet of prophets. During his ministry, Jesus said this about him, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has never risen no one greater than John the Baptist. That coming from Jesus? He also goes on to say that and whoever believes in me is higher than him. But we can see from that text that Jesus recognized that he was the prophet of the most. He was the prophet of prophets in a sense. He considered John the Baptist the greatest prophet. All of the Old Testament prophets pointed to Jesus. I said that earlier. But John the Baptist, who was like an Old Testament prophet, got to do what no other Old Testament prophet got to do. Not only did he get to live at the same time as Messiah, right? He was born just before Messiah. He also got to work alongside Messiah. That's pretty special. All the other ones would have just done anything to do that. He got to be born at the same time as him. He got to work alongside him. In fact, the ministries of John the Baptist and Jesus ran parallel at the same time for several years. Now in verse 76b, Zechariah identifies John's future task as the prophet of the Most High. Look at it with me. 76b, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. That was John the Baptist's primary task. That was his chief duty, if you will. Now this was prophesied back in Isaiah 40 verse 3 and Malachi chapter 3 verse 1. God planned to Send in eternity past, he planned to send a special prophet to get his people ready for the arrival of Messiah. Zechariah understood that his son was this special prophet, the one whom Isaiah and Malachi spoke about, and that is why he sang this truth over him. How did he come to that realization? Obviously, the Holy Spirit. He spent a whole lot of time with Mary. She stayed with them for months. They had conversations. He, he didn't conversate because he was mute, but he listened. The angel Gabriel testified to these things. So he knew who John was. He knew John was the prophet that Isaiah and Malachi spoke about. Now, how would John the Baptist prepare God's people for the arrival of Messiah later on when he became a man, when he grew up? If you read the Gospels, you will see that he, in particular, if you look at the Gospel of John, you will see that he prepared them spiritually. Spiritually. In order for God's people to experience, literally, to experience the Abrahamic and Davidic covenant blessings, the things that he's mentioned here, the things that they were hanging on to, they had to be made aware of the new covenant, okay? They had to understand, in a sense, the new covenant, which John was basically pointing to, it has to do, the new covenant has to do with being forgiven and cleansed of sin. Now, that's not to say that the Old Testament covenants didn't have those aspects to them. They had the sacrificial system and all that, but this is different. This is Jesus, the Lamb of God, who forgives and washes away sin. In order for God's people to experience the blessings of those ancient, older covenants, they had to be made aware of the new covenant. They had to be restored to God through faith in the one John the Baptist pointed to, the Lamb of God, he who does what? Takes away what? The sin of the world. Who is it? Jesus Christ. There is no way to become a partaker of the Abrahamic and Davidic covenant blessings or any other covenant blessing from God apart from the new covenant. You cannot bypass, in other words, you cannot bypass Jesus. You can't. You can't go around Jesus and be blessed by God. You've got to go into Jesus to be blessed by God. He alone is what? The way, the what? The life, right? The way, the truth, the life. No one shall come to the Father except through Him. No one shall, and I just added this to it, no one, I'm not adding to the Word of God, I'm just adding my paraphrase. No one shall receive God's covenant blessings apart from Jesus, even the Old Testament saints who had yet to put their eyes on Jesus or to experience his actual presence or coming, they did not see that. They were forecasting it. Even they were saved by the same faith. They believed in Messiah was coming, and that's why they, were, they weren't saved in some other way. They were believing in the future Messiah. Okay, We believe in the Messiah who came. They believed in the one who was coming. 
And here's the bottom line. The person who has Jesus has all of God's covenant blessings. The person who does not have Jesus has none of them. Goose egg, none. Now John's message of repentance and the baptism he performed prepared God's people spiritually for Jesus' message of repentance. He preached repentance like John the Baptist did as well as the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which is something that John the Baptist referenced, which is what comes through the Holy Spirit when someone believes in faith. Now, John did a really, really good job of preparing God's people for the Lord because his disciples began to leave him in droves to become disciples of Jesus Christ then. They did. They were leaving like crazy. He had multitudes, thousands of people at times coming down to the river to be baptized. He had disciples all over. He, his ministry was massive. It was far-reaching. People were coming from like every tribe of Israel and coming down there to, 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 to be ministered to by John the Baptist. And once Jesus came out and came out of the wilderness and started his ministry, all of a sudden, John's disciples started flying over. It's like this church over here, all its people went over to this other church over here. That's what it was like. And what that tells me is that John the Baptist did a darn good job, didn't he? Because if he'd done a poor job, they would have stayed with him. And they left his church to go be with Jesus. And some of his elders got torqued. They came to him and said, hey, man, our church is shrinking. The one that you've been talking about all the time, his church is increasing. What are we going to do about it? And he says, amen, I've been doing my job because he must increase and I must what? Amen. John did a good job. That transition blew out some of his disciples, but John was like, I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. So in verse 76b, and we're almost done, in verse 76b, Zacharias sang about John's mission. Think about that little verse like that. Zacharias sang about his son's mission, right? right? Which had to do with what? Preparing God's people for Jesus. Preparing God's people for the Messiah, right? In verses 77 through 79, Zacharias sang about Jesus' mission. The Messiah's mission, which is what? Preparing God's people for what? Salvation. Right? That's what he sings about here. According to his testimony, in, those, in the following verses, Jesus had come to do three things. We'll begin to wrap it up. Number one, to give knowledge. Verse 79a, or 70, pardon me, verses 77 through 78. To give knowledge, verses 77 through 78. Look at what it says. To give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. So this just isn't just any knowledge. This is gospel knowledge. This knowledge is Jesus going around preaching, this is why I came, to live, to die, to be buried, to rise. How many times did he tell his disciples that? And they were like, duh. And then when he said, I'm going to go do it, they were like, we'll kill anyone who tries to kill you. And then Jesus said, get behind me, Satan, to Peter. Old Captain Foot and Mouth, Mr. Impetuous. Jesus came to give knowledge. Zechariah recognizes that, but it's not just any knowledge like two plus two is nine. I need new knowledge. It is the knowledge of salvation, which has to do with what? What does it say to his people in the what? Come on, say the word forgiveness of sins. Now, now, let me tell you something right now. In Jewish categories, Jews were not thinking we need our sins forgiven. They were thinking we need to be delivered from Rome. They were thinking of earthly enemies. Ask any Jew today, well, we've got to get out of here, the Middle East and this problem. This is our promise, and we've got to get our enemies out of here. They're not thinking of their sin. They think because of the chosen people, they're cool with sin. They're, we don't have sin. We're okay. Oh, no, 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 no. Jesus, Zechariah acknowledges the fact that Jesus came to deliver them from enemies. It's there. It's part of his gospel work. But that'll never come to a person. They'll never have that physical deliverance from all haters and foes until the sin has been dealt with. That's why I've been telling you, you cannot experience those other covenant blessings until you have the new covenant blessings, the forgiveness of the Lamb. You can't. No, Jesus came and he preached knowledge and, and he gave them knowledge. He imparted knowledge or at least tried to impart knowledge to them. And, and what it was was the knowledge of salvation which has to do 
with forgiveness of sin. You must have your sins forgiven. You people want deliverance from Rome. What you need is deliverance from sin. And don't worry, later on, I'll take care of that deliverance from Rome. And all of it is based on what? What does it say? Because of the tender what? Mercy of God. Whereby the sunrise, I love that, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high. Sunrise is a messianic reference. Look at the Old Testament, it has to do with God's light shining down or the Messiah coming. So he came to give knowledge, but not just two plus two, math, good for earning a good career, won't get you saved. He came to give the knowledge of salvation. He came to preach the gospel. I'm going to live for you. You can can have my righteousness. I'm going to die for you. I'm going to be buried for you. I'm going to rise in three days so that you can be forgiven. You put your faith in me. You will be forgiven of your sins. That is the starting point for every covenant blessing that God has ever said. And the person who, by faith, by grace, through faith that believes in Jesus, gots all the blessings. All the covenant blessings are his or hers. Secondly, to give light. Now we look at 79a. To give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. What did Jesus call himself? I am the light of... You know what that means? It means that when God visited and sent Jesus, Jesus comes out and does his... Jesus is like the sunlight shining revelation and truth and illuminating darkness. He is the light of the world. You know, when he taught that, he was standing in front of the big oil lamp in the temple, which was this big, beautiful monstrosity with all these, you know, olive oil lamps that were burning all the time. They had to keep them burning all the time. He's probably pointing to it. But you're looking at that light, but you need to look at me. I'm the light of the world. He is the revelation of God. He is the one who illuminates And look at what it says. He came and and gave light, right, to those who do what? Sit in darkness. But it's daylight out. What do you mean? Well, you can be out there and enjoying that sunlight and all that brightness and everything and be in total and absolute spiritual darkness. We're talking about spiritual categories here, guys. He came to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. That's what it says. Do you realize that B.C., for you, before Christ, you were in darkness in the shadow of death? And because of Christ, you are in God's light. You have been illuminated, and you can see things for how they truly are. Your worldview is different now. You can discern spiritual truth. You can detect spiritual darkness and enemy spiritual enemies when they're around and stuff. You can sense that something's going on here. There's demonic... You have been illuminated and lit up by the Holy Spirit whom Jesus sent to you. You have the light and the truth in these things. How wonderful. Number three, to give guidance. 79b, our last little verse, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Are we talking about deliverance from the Romans and that kind of peace there? No, we're talking about spiritual categories here. A person will never have peace on earth until they have peace in heaven. We hear it all the time, peace on earth, we want peace, and people are doing everything they can to to establish it and get it and keep it, and yet we will never ever see it because peace starts in the Spirit. And, 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 And Jesus comes and he preaches. He preaches the gospel which is what? The way to peace with God the Father, which goes beyond God the Father and begins to have an impact down here on this side of glory. You you can't even have peace with man until you've had peace with God. But you can try to have it. You can be civil and all that. But until the war here is taken care of at this level, the wars here will never end. And it's amazing that when Jesus comes back, he has to make war to put an end to all the wars because men love darkness and hate the light. They hate Jesus. I hated Jesus before I got saved. I would, I would have never even said that. 
If you'd have asked me before I was saying, I probably would have said, I, yeah, Jesus is all right, whatever. You know what Jesus heard when I would say those things and bumble around with that stuff? He heard hate speech. <laughs> Anyone who does not, who is not in Christ hates him. And you're never going to have peace until, until you submit to the Prince of Peace. He came to, to give knowledge of salvation, to give light to those who sit in darkness. I praise him for his light. I praise him for his work. And he came to guide us into the way of peace, which is peace with the Father. These are all the things that are packed into Zechariah's benediction. He, he, he thought of Mary, and he thought of that baby in Mary's womb, and he thought of all of that. All of this stuff is here and coming. How wonderful.